This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm recording here in Sutton in the eastern townships of Quebec, traditional and unceded territory of the Abenaki people and the Wabanaki Confederacy. Today, I've been thinking about my decades-long fascination with the mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of Canadian artist Tom Thompson, a fascination I've held ever since my salad days when I used to work as a gallery educator at the McMichael Gallery in Kleinberg, Ontario. I remember rifling through the educational files in the gallery's office well after hours when I had finished with my other responsibilities, poring over the details to determine if he had been drowned or if he had been murdered, and strongly suspecting the latter. I often felt disturbed by that story. Who would have murdered him, and why? Why wasn't the case properly investigated? These are, by the way, the kinds of persistent questions that inform the genre of true crime thrillers the genre that may disputably find its origins in Edgar Allan Poe, although Truman Capote laid claim to its invention with his best-selling book, In Cold Blood. I was thinking of these questions because I had just come across Cold Case North, written by Michael Nest in conjunction with Dr. Deanna Rader and Eric Bell. But make no mistake, this is not just a true crime narrative. It's so much more. Even so, Cold Case North made me think of Thompson and his alleged drowning in a lake in Algonquin Park, a connection that Nest himself makes in the book. Addressed most recently in John Little's book titled, perhaps not so subtly, Who Killed Tom Thompson? The case is delineated in such a way as to render it more or less clear that Thompson was murdered, but highlights in fairly damning ways that the reasons for the irresolution of the case most surprisingly are related to Thompson's family. Why? Because Little claims they benefited financially from the meteoric rise of his career thereafter. Little's book is otherwise pretty standard stuff in terms of true crime fiction, with the gruesome details of the case and even photos and a description of a skull that was dug up in Algonquin Park. I swear it's a scene that comes right out of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Now, I wasn't terribly captivated by Who Killed Tom Thompson, whereas I couldn't put Cold Case North down. What a tremendous book. It offers this fast-paced emotional ride that'll leave you breathless for most of the journey. In reading Cold Case North, I came to a fuller sense of how much the case wasn't just about two Indigenous men who disappeared, but also about the community of which they were a part, and about what has now become generational Indigenous knowledge that was actually disregarded in the initial investigation, and the community's subsequent and unresolved sense of grief for that lack of responsibility and accountability to the community in the process. And so, I came to respond with a deeper sense of compassion. I considered how, as readers, we were invited to share and enter into this story, and how deeply I was moved by this process. Put simply, Reading Who Killed Tom Thompson set into high relief my reading of Cold Case North. In terms of the Thompson book, I felt much less sympathy, strangely almost none at all, for Thompson's family and the community that seemed to be pretty much unaffected by his disappearance. By contrast, I was weeping at the end of Cold Case North. 
So now, allow me to set the stage for you. The narrative focuses on Jim Brady and Absalom Halkett, who disappeared without a trace in June of 1967 from their remote lakeside camp in the bush in northern Saskatchewan. Dr. Deanna Rader opens the volume thus. I do not remember June 1967 when Jim Brady and Abby Halkett disappeared in the bush in northern Saskatchewan without a trace. I would have been too young. But I do remember my mother telling me about this mystery, how two local men living in her hometown, LaRange, were dropped off by plane at a lake an hour north so that they could go prospecting. When their boss came by a week later to check on them, he found that their camp had been set up, their beds had been slept in, and cups half full of tea sat next to their extinguished campfire. Jim and Abby were nowhere to be found. As mainstream Canada seems not to remember who Jim and Abby were, Rader reminds us that Brady was one of the most famous Indigenous activists in Canada, one of the famous five who helped establish the Métis Association of Alberta. So, if you're imagining he wasn't a great favourite with politicians in the church, you'd be right about that. Halkett was a Cree band counsellor, specifically for the Lac La Range Indian Band, who with Jim had gone off prospecting in Saskatchewan. When they disappeared, the authorities' search for their bodies was, at best, cursory, and worse still, they blamed Jim and Abby's incompetence in the wilderness for it. This is Dr. Rader on the subject. Mum told me that at some point the police had determined that Jim and Abby had gotten so lost in the bush that they had decided to try to walk out. A point that made my mother snort in derision. Well, not exactly snort. It's a gesture that I always think of as Cree and involves an exhaling of breath and a curling of the lip at the same time as rolling one's eyes. She explained that the police thought that Jim and Abby had tried to walk out, and then she exhaled with accompanying facial gestures to articulate a word so aspirated that it is hard to write out but is close to and I understood why. In all of this, the Métis and Cree members of Jim and Abby's communities have remained convinced to this day that there's been foul play. One of the members is Raider's Uncle Frank, a son of Peter Tompkins, one of the famous five, who enjoined her repeatedly to take up the cause of the search. Whenever she visited him, he would therefore at some point return to this unsolved mystery about which he held several theories. He was confident that the RCMP theories were wrong, that their murders had taken place, that their bodies could be found in Lower Foster Lake, and that the lake was so cold that their bodies would still be intact even after almost half a century. Where the story takes an even more interesting turn is Uncle Frank's decision that Dr. Rader be the person to solve it. When I completed my PhD in 2007, Uncle Frank became convinced that as a researcher, I would be able to follow up on his leads, find equipment to search the lake, and locate Jim and Abby. Now, as an Indigenous woman who teaches Indigenous literatures, I understand the responsibilities of our stories. Although it seems to me that a typical literature professor has only to study and teach well, people who teach Indigenous literatures struggle under a higher level of accountability. 
Determined to answer, and feeling responsible to her Uncle Frank's appeal, Rader subsequently engaged Eric Bell to facilitate the search, and Michael Nast not only to help research about the case, but also to write the book. A most judicious choice on her part, as it turns out. It was also a risky choice, though, because we must remember that Nest is, wait for it, not only not Indigenous, pardon the double negative here, he's also not Canadian. He's Australian, as you'll hear if you turn into my bonus episode that features an interview with him and another with Dr. Rader. So there's all kinds of potential here for the intrusive outsider's gaze. But what makes him so adept, in part, is this real sense of respect for boundaries, for only going as far as the community is willing to allow, and only as they learn to trust him as a researcher and as a writer. And as we as readers learn, the community has every reason not to trust the process of investigation. First, allow me to say something about the structure of the book. It's divided roughly into three sections plus a kind of afterword, titled as follows, Last Known Position, Parallel Sweep, Dead Reckoning, and Steady Green. Each of these borrows from the terminology of search and rescue missions. The first section, Last Known Position, involves the starting point of those missions. Where were Jim and Abby last seen and by whom? What do we know about where they may have traveled thereafter? This leads to the second section, Parallel Sweep, the aircraft procedure that's employed when a search area is expansive and only the approximate location of the target is known. In this section, Nest explores Uncle Frank's theory and that of other members in the Creek community, taking the time to listen to the evidence they present as the police didn't. Nest then entertains all the possible suspects who may have been involved in Jim and Abby's disappearance. This is where things really start becoming interesting. Suddenly, our understanding of the circumstances is broadened as Nest contextualizes the fact that Jim and Abby also had business dealings with several key men through their co-ownership of the company Foster Lake Mines. This is where Nest's real skill as a researcher also shows itself. I can't believe some of the data he ferrets out in some of the most obscure places, and at others, and as surprisingly, the most obvious ones. By this point, the book really gains in speed and direction, and that pace is only hastened by his tight economic style of writing. Having gathered up as much as he can and having entertained a series of suspects, Nest shifts to Section 3, titled Dead Reckoning, a mariner's term that gestures toward finding one's location by the distance and speed traveled from the departure point rather than by landmarks of the stars. It's here where Nest embarks on a different way of approaching this case. In the opening chapter of this section, he sheds light on the fact that Indigenous trackers learn their skills from childhood and can read the country like other people read books. What they see, which others don't, is detail. He refers to an article by Lloyd Matson, someone who searched extensively for Jim and Abby. In reading this article published in 1977, called The Disappearance in 1967 Still Causing Controversy, Nest adds that there it was, quote, hiding in plain sight in a newspaper, a forgotten clue about where Jim and Abby might have ended up, end quote. By this section, he also explores why he himself is so motivated, why he and others care so much it's in part related to a sense of human dignity and justice, of recovering these men from the edges of lines of sight, 
of bringing them into full view to restore them to this sense of dignity. We want, he argues in the book, to go to the RCMP and ask them to do their job, their duty, he emphasizes, to investigate, to make up for their failure back in 1967. So often, he adds, in life we cannot undo mistakes, but in this case there is an opportunity for the police to have a second chance to solve this missing person's case and to do better by these men. I'm going to return to Nest's assertion the call for duty and accountability to these men because that is what, quote, we want. It's not just the tale that's worth telling that makes this book so unique. It's not just the fact that first Raider, then Ness, tell it with love and compassion, with this critical eye and insight, with a tenacity for the truth and a love for detail. There were even moments of levity as when I laughed out loud about Nest's remark on a winter day in Saskatchewan with sunshine and blue sky and a wind chill of minus a million. It's also not just about the fact that he and Raider have this impressive ability to evoke personalities and conjure up persons, to make them come alive, to make the community come alive that felt the loss of Jim and Abby keenly. It's to Nest's great credit, no doubt facilitated by Raider and Bell, that the persons in and around LaRange are delineated in complex, yet not invasive ways. We learn to care about them as we read. Alongside this, he adopts a methodical approach to the mystery around their disappearance that all makes for one powerful book. His meticulous research not only reveals a certain measure of historical police incompetence in relation to the mystery, it also speaks to a racial and cultural bias enacted toward Indigenous peoples, Indigenous communities, Indigenous knowledges, all of which were dismissed in the original investigation. Raider is Crematee, and as I say, she did take a risk in engaging someone who's not. He acquired through previous experience and probably learned to acquire in this process such clear respect for an understanding of Indigenous protocols, knowing when not to push too far for information, but also the sense of when to ask the right questions, showing nuance and depth, not only in relation to the potential cast of suspects, but also to the community members who were affected by the loss. In the third section of the book, in a chapter called Dreams, for example, he articulates why he understands he can't push the investigation along any further. And it explains why the fourth and final section is written by Dr. Rader, as she and her cousin Eric Bell direct the last search for Abby and Jim. That section, titled Steady Green, refers to the light signal that authorizes a place to land if satisfied that no risk of collision exists. I won't say much more about how this is relevant to the last section. I'll leave that for you, dear listeners and readers, to determine. But I will say this. When I completed this section, I experienced this sense of deep grief. I had learned to care about these two men. I had some sense of understanding of that loss that had been experienced because, as Dr. Rader says, they were missing from the lives they ought to have completed, missed by the loved ones and by descendants who would have liked to have met them. At the same time, I also had an overwhelming sense of the honor restored to their lives and to their stories. The facet of this book that is so rewarding, and painfully so, is that it opens up the context to make that sense of loss so real, so much larger, 
The we to which Belle refers isn't just members of Larange, although their grief is unquestionably paramount. It isn't just about missing and murdered indigenous men, which surely is a subject to which our sense of accountability must also turn. No, no, it's also specifically about positioning Jim and Abby within a larger community, bringing them and their lives into sharp focus so that we understand what precisely was lost when they were. If you'd like to hear a little bit more about Cold Case North, you should know that I've released two bonus episodes, interviews with author Michael Nest and collaborator Dr. Deanna Rader, as bonus episodes to correspond to this one. Thanks for joining me today on Getting Lit with Linda, and stay tuned for our next episode, which will be about Kai Kello's magnetic equator. Thanks for joining me again. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.